morning, everyone. And so our first reading, we hear about the early days of the church and about persecution. And uh, Paul and Barnabas are first going to the Jewish people to speak to them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and about his ways, about his life. And uh, we see that there's a confrontation. And uh, in fact, the Jews are trying to uh, convince Paul and Barnabas to remain faithful to the Hebrew traditions, and they are saying no, and there's a persecution that happens because of that. But my friends, uh, so Paul and Barnabas first speak to the Jews, and when they won't listen, they go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are everyone who is not a Jew, and the Gentiles are considered to be all over the world uh, at that time. Oh, it could have been just cities away, but that was all over the world. But in this event happening where the Jews wouldn't listen, but the Gentiles would, and they received it with joy, it's a fulfillment of an Old Testament prediction from Isaiah 49, 6. Uh, the light of salvation would go to all the ends of the earth. Our second reading uh, from the book of Revelation is a canticle, is a vision of those who uh, will remain faithful to Christ during the great time of trial and persecution, that they will uh, have their heavenly reward. And our gospel uh, though short from John, uh, has quite a bit going on. There's first this idea of a flock and a shepherd, uh, meaning a community also. Uh, Jesus speaks about eternal life, about the resurrection, and then he speaks about being unified. He says, the Father and I are one. And John will develop that further in saying, just as this church uh, that has a shepherd and there's a flock, they are to be one also. Uh, so preachers may be today speaking about that unity. Uh, they may talk about the good shepherd image. Uh, I've chosen to talk to you about the resurrection and eternal life. Um, now, my friends, I have to, as a precursor to this, on Friday, uh, the children, uh, when we have Mass on Friday in schools, and the school comes to Mass, and I attempted to do something that I normally don't do, draw an analogy, from outside of the scriptures, and I failed. <laughs> I don't, Nick, were you here? You weren't here Friday. Were, no, you weren't here on Friday. So it's one of our teachers. I didn't do so good. And um, the teachers are like, yeah, that didn't work. And my priest friend said, the reason why it doesn't work because you're not good at it, Father. <laughs> what you're good at is the scriptures. And he said, but if you want to get better, then keep trying at it. You know, keep doing it. So I'm a going to attempt to do analogies for you today. And if I fail, I fail. So my friends, um, as I said, the themes that we have, I want to talk to you about the scriptures. And one of the modes I typically use with you is to, I tell you it's important when we're reading the scriptures, not only the content, but the context of it. What is the context? What is the evangelist saying? What is he doing? And what was going on at the time? So this is what I want to do for you today. So St. John, uh, whose gospel we're reading, situates the scene um, at a particular time in Jesus' life. And uh, it is a time when Jesus is walking uh, between, uh, up to the beautiful temple and the precinct of the temple. And it was during the Jewish celebration of the festival or feast of dedication. And we know that uh, by a different name, we know it as Hanukkah. So this is happening at this time. It commemorates Hanukkah, the rededication of the temple that was destroyed at 165 B.C. The pagans of their time destroyed the temple erected to God. 
um, they desecrated it. And the Jews were able to recover control over the temple. And in celebration, they lit lights that illumined their homes and the streets and the temple. And that was known as the Festival of Lights. And my understanding, this is the meaning of the menorah for them. It is during this celebration that Jesus is giving this speech or this homily or this talk to the people. And Jesus is talking about eternal life. And he's assuring the people that those who will follow him will never perish. Now, my friends, Jesus is talking about the resurrection. Uh, about heaven, absolutely, plus the resurrection. And this is where the problem is. They do not understand the resurrection of the body. They can't understand it. It makes no sense. And this becomes crucial uh, for us Christians. Uh, this is a difficult, difficult concept for the Jewish people uh, because for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had no inkling about this. They didn't understand it. It made no sense. Um, they simply could not conceive of life uh, that with a body like this. They don't understand. And then it would only be in later Jewish thought uh, that they would come to a, a different understanding. And they arrived at it because they said, our God is just in all that he does. And um, we know that good people suffer uh, in this world and wicked people seem to prosper at times. So they thought to themselves, the Jewish people, we wonder then how will God reconcile all these things if he is truly just? If God's justice was to be vindicated, they ultimately concluded then that there would be some kind of afterlife where God will reconcile these things. So they began to think about this. And um, Jesus will use the Old Testament. Remember, there is no New Testament in Jesus' time. <laughs> the New Testament isn't written until 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is using the Torah. He's Jewish. He's going to use the Old Testament scriptures as we understand it. So he presents the book of wisdom to them and offers them the assurances about the afterlife, uh, which is found in that reading. If you haven't ever read uh, the book of wisdom, go and you will see. Um, and yet the concept of the resurrection and eternal life remained elusive uh, to many people of Jesus' time, and it still does today. Uh, even speaking with Christians, it's hard for me uh, to get them to make that leap about not just heaven, but about the resurrection of the body. And that we will be with our Lord Jesus in that way as he is. And my friends, uh, in particular in Jesus' time, the Sadducees, which was one of the uh, religious authorities, they found any talk of the resurrection of a body ridiculous. And um, Jesus politely dismissed them as not understanding. And he tried to point out in the scriptures where they were wrong. And um, one of the most famous of the Torah uh, uh, is the Old Testament. And it is the Exodus, the book of Exodus. And Jesus tried to point out to them, and he does this, and it's in the scriptures where he says, I will show you where this is. And he quotes God. Uh, it's in Exodus 3, 6, where he says, Didn't the Lord God say, I am the God of Abraham? I am the God of Isaac, uh, of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob. Jesus uh, said God did not use the past tense. I was the God of Jacob or Abraham, implying that they're dead. Or I used to be, 
He says, I am the God of Abraham. This implies that Abraham is alive. Now, and when Jesus spoke these words, um, and then, of course, when God did, Abraham had been dead for a long time in the body, as we understand it. He tried to prove to them using their, the scriptures that this exists, but um, they didn't understand it. And many people today, even devout Christians, have difficulty understanding what the resurrection means because, one, we have never experienced the resurrection as Jesus talked about. There is resuscitation that happens in hospitals. That is different. We're talking about a resurrected body. And remember how Jesus, how his body acted? I know I make fun, but Jesus came back from the dead and he set up a barbecue on the beach. And he cooked fish for the, because he was trying to reach the people. He was trying to make his friends understand. And then even, more, uh, even in greater things, Jesus walked right through walls and came in through the locked door. Remember, all the doors are locked, he came right in. And Jesus was in one place, and then he would go to the next place. Uh, and then finally, Thomas, put your fingers here. Touch, 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 and see that I have a body. I am not a ghost. I am not just a spirit. I am not a figment of your imagination, because I created a barbecue for you, and you're eating with me. And you're not having a mass delusional event where the 13 of you are seeing the same thing, and it's just in your heads. Jesus showed them what the resurrection really is. This is important, because... Before that happened, before, after this happened, his friends and his followers were locked away, terrified and frightened. As a matter of fact, on the road to Emmaus, they said we were hoping he was the Messiah, but he isn't because he's dead. So Jesus had to come back in the body to get them to understand. It is then that they understand. So we Christians have to realize that it was not the Scriptures that led them to their faith. It was Jesus Christ himself that led them. And it was the resurrection that did it. So we speak about the resurrection this way. So my friends, here's where I'm going to try the analogy that I tried for the school kids on a different subject that failed. So if I fail, I fail, and you can send me emails. <laughs> so nature. I want to use nature and science, and I want... Um, I want you to pay close attention. Amber and you twins, listen to what I'm going to bring in with science. Nature offers some analogies that provide us a hint at transformation and change, and, but it does not remove the mystery, if you will, about eternal life. St. Paul uses the image of a seed, uh, giving life to a new and different form of existence. You plant the seed, it becomes a plant, and then it be, it's a flower. 1 Corinthians 15, 35-42. Jesus also used things of the earth to help people understand. St. Paul would ultimately suggest that our mortal bodies are the seed for a more glorious body. What kind of glorious body? Like Jesus, when he resurrected from the dead. And that one day we will be with him that same way forever. Another example from nature would come from the water beetles. You can laugh if you want, but here we go. They live on the water. They live on lakes. But they eventually crawl out of the lake and they attach themselves to a twig. They secure themselves to it and then they die. But in a very short period of time, the heat of the summer dries their shell, it cracks, and out of that comes 
a dragonfly. And the dragonfly flies off into happiness. They look like they're happy when you see them, right? Dragonflies. Did you know that dragonflies are water beetles? Right. See? Now, uh, but I'll use another example that more people are familiar with, caterpillars. Aren't they cute? People love them. Uh, they crawl around on the ground and in trees. But in time, they spin a cocoon, and they enter into it. They crawl inside of it. And also in time, they are transformed into a very beautiful butterfly, and they fly off into the sunset. And I think they have a happy life also until a bird picks them off, right? <laughs> I suppose. Um, my friends, what I'm getting at is science, uh, now, Father's not ignorant, science calls this metamorphosis. Religion calls the afterlife the resurrection. Names. Metamorphosis, resurrection. Here we go. So I'm showing you how this... So my friends, here's my point. We humans accept this marvelous transformation of these little creatures, or lesser creatures, and we don't question it. Sure, Father, the caterpillar comes, I've seen it. The dragonfly I didn't know about, but now I've seen it. Okay. Why do we balk then at the resurrection? And my friends, I found a quote from a scientist from the 1960s. His name is Werner von Braun, and he is the father of American space program. And he was talking about the topic of transformation in science. And it was, became one of the most strongest affirmations about the immortality of the human person. And I'm going to offer you his quote. Here's what he says, quote, Many people seem to think that science has somehow made religious notions antiquated and untimely. Jace, are you listening to me? But I think science has a real surprise for the skeptics. Science, for instance, tells us that nothing in nature, not even the tiniest particle, can disappear without a trace. Nature does not know extinction. All it knows is transformation. Now, if God applies this fundamental principle to the most minute and insignificant parts of the universe, says the scientist, does it not make sense to assume that he applied it to the human person? He goes on to say, I believe it does. And everything science has taught me, meaning the scientist, and continues to teach me, strengthens my belief in the continuity of this spiritual existence after death. These are his words. People think that science has this great tension. There is not that great tension. As a matter of fact, it helps to inform faith and reason. And science and reason and faith. And so, my friends, I follow up with that. If God applies his established scientific and mathematical principles to some of the minute and most insignificant, comparatively, um, of his creations, would it not make sense that his greatest creation, which is human beings, would he not apply the same principle to them? So why do Christians balk at the idea of the resurrection of the body? even though Jesus came back and proved it. And uh, my friends, with all of this being said, as Christians, should not we believe in the resurrection simply because our Lord Jesus Christ told us about it? 
More than that, he came back and showed it to the world. Here I am. And here's where you will be with me. So my friends, I don't know if my analogies worked this time. Um, maybe they did. They certainly didn't do it on Friday. <laughs> the teachers made it very clear. Yeah, don't do that again, Father. <laughs> that didn't work. And that's why Father should never be in the classroom, but stay here in the sanctuary and speak. Now, my friends, uh, I am the little shepherd. Uh, Jesus is the big shepherd. I'm the little shepherd of this Roman Catholic church in Gig Harbor. And uh, I want to address to you the current political events going on. This event between pro-abortionists and anti-abortionists, about pro-life and uh, pro-choice. And I want to begin with telling you that I am an American citizen. I have rights also. I vote and I elect also. My voice matters as does your voices and everyone's voices. That's freedom of speech. That's the democracy we live in. I condemn no one. I leave condemnation to my Heavenly Father because the Scriptures have told me to do so. But when it comes to bullying and intimidation via violence, to threaten to come to my residence, to threaten to come into my house and disrupt my ritual is wrong. I would never enter into anyone's home and disrupt their rituals. I don't stand in front of anyone's home and call them names. To call me a Roman Catholic priest and any of my priest brothers a bigot, a racist, misogynist, and even worse, a pedophile, to further their right about abortion is wicked and wrong. As far as I'm concerned, can you do better than name-calling? But I condone no violence. I advocate for no violence or bullying. So to threaten the Roman Catholics with violence is wrong. We have a democracy. Take your voice to the Capitol. You want to hang outside the court? Then hang outside the court. But don't threaten me or my brother priests or my church or my personal residence or this house dedicated to God. But, my friends, First uh, Peter 3, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, to those who persecute you, offer a blessing. Because of this you were called, that you might inherit the kingdom. I try to live a peaceful life with everyone, but I stand my ground on things I believe. I do not tell the people who are pro-abortionists to shut up. They get a right, just like we do, to speak. But it has its place in where it should be done. The scriptures tell me and all of you who are Christians, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be concerned, though, for what is noble in the sight of all. This is Romans 12, 18. And if possible on your part, live at peace with others. The scriptures also tell us Christians, 1 Peter 3, 16, 
And do everything in gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. Jesus told us, Luke 6, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 11, 12, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. A bit of history. The Catholic Church and Christians have been persecuted for over 2,000 years. Persecution is nothing new to us. Governments and entities, not only outside the church, from within it, has tried to destroy the church. But they will not be able to be successful because Christ himself said, nothing will prevail against my church. We may be persecuted, but it's going to exist. Long after the protesters are gone and dead, the church will still be here. Long after I'm gone and dead, the church will still be here. A little bit of history about the United States of America. The Puritan Christians are the ones who came first, really, and set up shop. And they attacked the Roman Catholic Christians when we came here. We were persecuted and murdered, and we were discriminated against. That is part of the reasons why Catholics formed their own churches, buildings, their own hospitals, and their own schools, because we were not wanted. So in the United States, being persecuted is nothing new and unusual. So I say bring it, because it'll give my Lord and Savior glory. As it said, if they persecute you, your crown in heaven will be bigger. I do not seek to be persecuted. I seek to live at peace. Everyone has a right. So do I. But nowhere to take that place and to fight for that. But don't attack me or my brother priests. Go Go to the capital and bring your fight. And my friends, and when I say that I am pro-life, because those are the terms, pro-life, pro-choice, when I say I am pro-life, I mean it across the board. I have great concern for the unborn, and I have great concern for women and pregnant mothers. I also have great concern for the elderly and the infirm and what societies do to the elderly and the infirm. I also have great concern at what society has done and continues to do and discriminate against human beings that are considered handicapped. That is pro-life also. I also have great concern for our children and our youth because societies of late have got them so confused and so fearful that they live in despair. And in that despair, they consider suicide often. So I have great concern for them and for their future and their happiness. So when I use the word, I am pro-life, that is what I mean across the board. 
from the moments of life to the very end and everything in the middle. And I will not apologize for that either, using one of their statements. I do not apologize for it. If you want to persecute me, go ahead. It brings glory to my Savior, and it will make my crown in heaven bigger. To the moms, happy Mother's Day. Let us try and live peaceably with each other, never giving up what we hold true, but to live at peace with others as Christ wanted. Huh?